So are you ready for Christmas? That seems like the perennial question this time of year, isn't it? You meet somebody and sort of the first thing you do is you say to them, well, are you ready for Christmas? And uh, we've developed sort of a cultural shorthand with that uh, statement. Are you ready for Christmas? What we mean by that is, is your house decorated? Have you uh, purchased all the gifts that you need to purchase? You know, both the obligatory ones and uh, the heartfelt ones. You know what I'm talking about, right? So if you got your house decorated, have you purchased all your gifts? And, uh, you know, have you uh, done all your baking and, and all of these sorts of things? That's really what lies behind the question, are you ready for Christmas? And that's because Christmas has uh, become encrusted for us in, in many cultural traditions. It's, it's, uh, it's become a season of the year in which uh, these traditions kind of rule. And if, if, if you don't participate in the, in the traditions, then, then somehow you don't have the spirit of Christmas. That's kind of the way it goes. Even for believers, it, it has come to sort of define Christmas for us, these, these cultural traditions. I was reminded of this uh, the past, this past week. Uh, I was uh, coming out of a restaurant, and uh, they were playing, like virtually everywhere these days, they were playing Christmas carols in this uh, restaurant, and, the, and these, were, these were traditional Christian Christmas carols. But uh, what really sort of caught my ear was the voice of the guy who was singing them. And the reason it caught my ear is because he's Jewish. He's a secular Jew. Now, if I had to tell you who, who he is, you'd all know. He's a, he's a very famous recording star. But I thought, how interesting, how cultural Christmas has become that even the great Christmas carols that we just sang were being sung by a secular Jewish man because it's a cultural thing. It's become a cultural thing. And we can get caught up in it. It becomes the the celebration of of family, the celebration of of gathering together and eating a meal together and and just being, you know, home for the holidays and, and all of those kinds of things. In fact, we talk about Christmas being ruined because of a, a loss in the family that might occur at that time of year, and, and somehow we think the message of Christmas can be ruined. It can only be ruined, beloved, if it's a cultural message that revolves around family. But see, it's much more than that, isn't it? It's much more than that. I'm reminded of uh, that uh, TV special that's always shown at this time of year, Charlie Brown's Christmas. You've all seen it. There in Charlie Brown's Christmas, there, there's this tremendous confusion and angst going on about what is the real meaning of Christmas, right? And then Linus steps forward. Do you remember this? Linus steps forward and he, he begins to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And this is the meaning of Christmas. 
And that's what I want to remind us of this morning. I want to remind us of that. My, my hope this morning is, is to sort of peel back some of the cultural encrustments of Christmas. And to at least for the next hour, allow us the opportunity to look again at the most wondrous of events. Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. And I want to take a kind of a different approach to Luke 2 this morning. As part of the uh, cultural Christmas celebration, our family, at least some of our family, had the opportunity to, to go and to see the Nutcracker. And uh, it was uh, performed in, in uh, two acts with, um, with uh, several scenes in each act. And I want to approach Luke 2 in that sort of a format this morning. I want to approach it as, as if it were a two-act play with three scenes in each act. So that's my structure. It's a two-act play with three scenes in each act. And it's designed to help us experience the wonder of Christmas. So the play begins with, with a narrator. The narrator, you know, he kind of stands off to the side, he or she stands off to the side and, and sort of sets the, the scene to get it going. It begins in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Act 1, the curtain goes up. Heaven's Annunciation. Heaven's Annunciation. And it begins with the first scene here in verses 8 and 9, entitled, An Unlikely Audience. An Unlikely Audience. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Usually when we think about uh, shepherds and the Christmas story, we get sort of a romanticized picture of it all. It, it's frequent on the front of Christmas cards. It, it sort of blends in nicely to that, to that notion of that cultural Christmas that it's all about these warm feelings. And, and somehow the shepherds seem to add that for us. But how far that is from the historical realities. Shepherds in the first century were not desirable people. They were 
consider the lowly of society. They were, for example, considered loathsome to the Egyptians. Back in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 34, when Jacob and his family came down into Egypt, you remember the Egyptians wouldn't even let them live among them. They, they set them off into the land of Goshen. And it says it's because they were shepherds. And shepherds were considered loathsome to the Egyptians. They wanted nothing to do with shepherds. We're also reminded of Israel's great King David. And how when he came to the battle line where his, where his brothers were in the army of Saul and, and facing the army of the Philistines and their great champion Goliath, that one of David's older brothers looks at him and, and he speaks with him to him with disdain and basically says to him that why don't you just go back and keep your few sheep, David. A shepherd boy, you are a, a nothing, you are a nobody. Get out of here. Egyptians don't want anything to do with them. The, the average person in Israel wanted nothing to do with the shepherds. The Jewish sources of that period, they tell us that shepherds were considered to be ceremonially unclean. And that was a result of their occupation. You know, chasing around sheep and taking care of all of their various needs rendered one ceremonially defiled or unclean according to Pharisaical Jewish law. You had to do, to make it sort of polite company here, you had to do all kinds of gross things to care for sheep. And so you would be an outcast from polite society. Furthermore, shepherds had a reputation for being somewhat dishonest. And it probably comes originally from Jacob. When you remember the stories of Jacob's shepherding when he was taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Shepherds. They'd, they'd watch the sheep together and then later they'd divide them out. And it'd be one for me, one for you, two for me, one for you. And that would be sort of how it went. So shepherds were considered to have a distinct tendency toward dishonesty. Lowly, loathsome, defiled, and dishonest. These are the shepherds. Generally speaking, the outcasts of first century Jewish society. And yet we encounter them here in Luke's gospel. And it's best, I think, as we as we think about shepherds is to strip away the romanticized view of it all and to, and to see them as those who represent the lowly, the humble, the unworthy of this world. It says they were in the same region, verse 8, shepherds staying out in the fields. That is, they were in and around Bethlehem watching the flocks, flocks that were likely designated for temporal, temple sacrificial worship. They'd be tending the flocks that would, that would later be slain in the temple. The Old Testament requirements of the sacrificial system calls for a constant demand for sheep to be slaughtered, for their blood to be spilled. 
The slaughter of these lambs was God's ordained means by which his people would be temporarily covered from their sins, pardoned. While they awaited the coming of Messiah, that one to whom John the Baptist pointed in in John chapter 1 and verse 29 and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, because on that first Christmas night, the sheep out there in the field would be susceptible to predators and and thieves, it would be common for the shepherds to gather the flocks together. Many different people's flocks would, would all be brought together at night into a sheepfold. Sheepfold would be made out of either piled stones maybe a natural cave. They'd cut thorn bushes and and stack them around it, sort of like barbed wire, and and it would create this enclosure that would be a safe place for the flocks to spend the night. The shepherds themselves would would gather around the doorway of the sheepfold, and there they'd build a small fire, and and they would huddle around that fire and, and take turns through the night, keeping watch over the flocks. It's in this environment here, that suddenly, suddenly the the divine breaks into the common. It's it's as if a doorway in heaven is thrown open and the light of the glory of God blazes down through that doorway and, and illumines what lies beyond. The shepherds that say, huddle in fear. In the face of such magnificence, through the doorway steps an angel, and he begins to speak. The account is quite emphatic here that the the angel is is accompanied by a blazing glory. Do you see that, verse 9? The glory of the Lord shone around them. It's a a blazing kind of glory. It's It's a light that that defies natural explanations. And such is the way in Scripture when the divine breaks into the natural. It's accompanied by this this blinding light. This light, I believe, is the Shekinah glory of God. The very presence of the divine. It's the light that led Israel out of the wilderness, Exodus 16 and Verse 10, it's the, it's the light that visibly descended upon the tabernacle as, as God took up residence there. It signifies the presence of God. According to Ezekiel chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 24 and, and verse 17, to the, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire there on the mountain. It's typical. When heaven invades earth, people are frightened. People are frightened. And and these shepherds are frightened. Look again. They are terribly frightened, it says, verse 9. They are entirely unnerved. They They are suddenly undone by an overwhelming display of the power and the glory of God. And it cowers them in fear. I think it's interesting that when God decides to announce the incarnation of His Son, that He chooses some shepherds to make the announcement to. 
He chooses the outcasts of the world. He chooses the down and out, the, the, those that are afflicted, the lowly, the humble, the people of no account. Reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 and 2, the prophet Isaiah wrote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Incidentally, that same prophecy, Jesus himself reads in the synagogue in Nazareth as he begins his great Galilean ministry. This speaks of that coming one. And he came, beloved, notice, to the lowly of this world, the lowly, to those who sense their need. He doesn't come to those who are self-satisfied, to those who who are self-sufficient, to those who are rich, to those who are powerful. He comes to those who are poor in spirit, poor in spirit, a very unlikely audience to hear the message that the king has been born. Scene two, an amazing announcement. Verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. I bring you good news. Literally, gospel. I bring you gospel. Good news. The news is a great joy, he says. A great joy. What is this good news? The long-awaited one has come. Messiah has come. And this good news is is not just limited to a few people of of certain stature or position or, or standing in society. It is a news that is for all the people. All the people. Regardless of their age, regardless of their sex, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their social position, regardless of their educational achievement, it's for all, even shepherds. Even shepherds. See, if it's for shepherds, then it's for all of us. It's for all of us. I bring you good news, a gospel of great joy. Well, that good news is is bound up here in in three titles. Three titles, verse 11, that that the angel applies to this one. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, first title. A Savior. One has come who can meet our deepest needs. Our deepest needs. Beloved, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. There is a relational breach between us and our Creator. 
that we have rebelled against His holy law and stand justly condemned by Him. And there is nothing we can do to balance the account, to to make it right. There is no work of religious devotion. There is no work of meritorious human accomplishment. There is no good thing you can do to restore that which you have lost. You are drowning. You sin. And you need a Savior. You need a Savior. And God has condescended to reach down to us and save us. Good news. There's a Savior has come. Who is that Savior? The end of verse 11. He is Christ the Lord. Second title, Christ, Messiah, anointed one. That one long foretold by the ancient prophets has come. The word means deliverer. The word means king. The word means anointed one. It is the future and great Davidic king long promised in the prophets. That which had been foretold for hundreds and hundreds of years, yea, thousands of years, had now arrived. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, This long-awaited one would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. God has made good. His promises have come to pass. All of the ancient hopes and dreams of the peoples that have accumulated through the centuries have come to fruition. I bring you incredible news. Messiah has come. Christ, the Lord. Third title. The Lord. Kurios in the the Greek, a word that was used in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament almost 7,000 times to, to translate the sacred name Yahweh. There is no question of who this is a reference to. It is God. It is the creator, God. The one who created and sustains heaven and earth. It is God himself. He has come. He has come. God has become man. And in the mystery of the incarnation... There lies the hope of the salvation of all who will believe. It is His perfect humanity that that enables Him to identify with us and stand as our substitute. It is His undiminished deity that, that gives to His sacrifice the merit necessary to repair the bridge or the, the breach between God and man. 
There is no other way. There is no other way. We cannot reach to Him. He must reach to us, and He has done so. I bring you amazing good news. God has stretched out His hand to save you. To save you. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. The angel confirms this incredible announcement with a sign. This sign is for you, specifically those shepherds. You're to, you're to go and you're to, you're to find a child. And it's a most unusual sign. A most unusual sign. And the sign's unusual character is not that it's a child wrapped up in swaddling cloth. That is common practice for children. The sign that, that stands out, what is so incredibly unusual, is that Israel's Messiah will be found in a feed trough, not in a palace. This is the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in rags who will deliver his people. This is your sign. It's an amazing announcement. Scene three. Suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Suddenly, without warning, this solitary angel who has appeared and made this announcement is now accompanied by a multitude of the angelic armies. The sky is is illumined with them. And they are calling out in, in cosmic stereo one to another, bringing glory to God. The book of Job tells us in in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, at the creation of the earth, the angels all sang and and shouted for joy. Now at the birth of the God-man, they again pour forth their praise. It's kind of like a a veil that separates heaven and earth. It suddenly became transparent. It's like the shepherds could now look up into the heavenly throne room. They get a glimpse into another realm. And the realm is is glorious. And and this realm is filled with the glorious news of the incarnation of the God-man. And it is so magnificent in in its splendor that the inhabitants of that realm cannot help themselves. They must burst forth in praise. Some think they sang. Perhaps they did. The text says they spoke, saying to one another, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. 
Not in highest degree, but in, in highest heaven. Glory to the God of highest heaven is what they're saying. All of heaven is rejoicing and praising God for the outworking of salvation. The thing that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.12 that the angels long to look into the very mystery of the redemption of the human race. It has begun. And they burst forth in praise. And on earth, peace Fullness of blessings, salvation to all with whom the God of highest heaven is pleased. This is a statement about God's sovereignty. This is not a, just a wish of general benevolence towards all of His creation. This is, this is a statement about God's specific benevolence towards His people, those whom He has chosen to save. Glory to God in highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Beloved, I've, I've uh, received through the years a number of birth announcements. Appreciate them. Many of them are cute, some of them are even beautiful. But never has there been a birth announcement like this. This is the birth announcement to end all birth announcements. In the words of Charles Wesley, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. God stepped into space and time. In that lowly place and revealed himself to those lowly people. And set in motion the eternal plan of redemption that would rescue a people for his own glory. The lights go down. The curtain falls. It's the end of Act 1. Normally it would be intermission, but there's no way I'm letting you go. The lights go back up. The curtain rises again. Act two. Act two. It's like a, like a stone. You know when you throw a stone into a pond and you, and you watch the ripples and they just go out, don't they? In every direction. They just go out, they reverberate out from the point of impact. It's like a, like a sonic boom. It reverberates through a canyon, bouncing off the walls, repeating on and on and on. Act two, Earth's reverberation. Earth's reverberation at heaven's annunciation. Heaven spoke and earth responded. And the response takes one of three different paths. One of three different paths. Scene one. Immediate action. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. 
So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Although the heavenly host had had appeared quickly, it appears that they gradually recede back into heaven. The sky grows dark again. The shepherds are surrounded by the dark sky of a Judean midwinter night. And they start discussing what it is they've seen. You can sort of visualize what's going on, right? Did you see that? Rub their eyes, you know? Yeah, what did you see? What did you hear? They begin to talk. They decide as a group, we need to go see this one. We need to go see this one. And, and so we got to go. we got to go now, but well, we got a problem here because we've got like a sheep fold full of sheep. Now, how they handle that problem, I have no idea. I expect that they, they uh, had some sort of drawing of straws, as it were, and a few have to stay behind and watch the sheep. While the rest of them proceed in haste to search for the child. And so they head straight away to Bethlehem, verse 15. See the thing. They hurry, verse 16. They find their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Now, how they found the child there in the manger, we don't know. Bethlehem is not a very big village. They probably just kind of searched around. Searched around. But they find the child. Mary, his mother, Joseph, his stepfather. Verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Now, it's not absolutely clear here to whom they made known the angelic announcement. I'm pretty confident they must have told Mary and Joseph about it. But I think there's more to that. I think it's, it's kind of clear from this that, that they cannot stop talking about this. So they are, they are telling all who will listen. Now, I don't know if they went door to door in the neighborhoods of Bethlehem. I think they may have. I mean, after all, they're, they're looking for the sign, the, the child in the feed trough, right? That's all they have. And so as they go door to door in different houses and, and you know, the animals are stored usually out back or sometimes underneath the home, They're looking around for this one. I imagine they're banging on a few doors. Person comes to the door and kind of rubs their eyes. You know, what do you want? I'm looking for Messiah. What? Yeah, see, these angels, they came to us and they told us that he had come, that he had been born. And the sign is we're, we're to find this, this child, this baby, laying in, a, in an animal feed trough. Man, you got the wrong house. <laughs> you got the wrong house. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of inclined to, to see that. I mean, maybe they stood in the public square and just yelled. Maybe. 
But I'm more inclined to think that they, they went looking and, and they went knocking. What's clear is they can't keep this great event under wraps. That's the, that's the clear thing that comes from this. The means and the mechanism, we can enjoy a little uh, sanctified speculation. But the big point here, the point that Luke is, is making to us here is there was an immediate action for them and they cannot keep their mouths closed about what has happened. Verse 20. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had he uh, heard and seen just as had been told them. Everybody, anybody, Whoever will listen, let me tell you the most amazing story. You will not believe this. Here we were, we were out in the, you know, at night, we were washing the sheep, and the heavens rip open, and the angel of the Lord comes, and he speaks, and, and then the, the heavenly host, the army of angels in this, in this cosmic stereo are, are just yelling one to another, glory to God in the highest and on, on, on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Listen, the king has come. The king has come. Scene two, temporal amazement. Verse 18, and all who heard it, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They were amazed. They were amazed. They were astonished at what they heard. This was, a, this was an amazing event. This was a, a wondrous event. But I think it didn't go much beyond that for most of them. I think for the majority of them, and the reason I think that is as I continue to read the Gospels and as they play out, what I come to to see and to understand is that for the majority of the people who heard this great news, it didn't really change anything. They wondered about it. They were amazed with it. But they didn't act upon it. It never went beyond their ears to their hearts. They simply wondered. They simply turned it over in their minds. They they simply thought about it and said, hey, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, many times, this is the human experience, isn't it? Many times we hear something that is, that is really quite astonishing. But we never get beyond shaking our heads and commenting, wow, that's amazing. Pass the potatoes. Right? I mean, it doesn't change a thing. All the time we hear things. And as long as it just stays up here, and we just sort of noodle it around a little bit and go, whoa, yeah, that's, well, that's different. That's amazing. How do you explain I don't know. How do you explain it? 
You can hold it at arm's length. God became man? Stepped into space and time? Born of a virgin? Lived a perfect life? Died a sacrificial death? Rose from the dead on the third day? That's amazing! Pass the potatoes. Right? Oh well. Life's full of amazing things. But there's no indication here that anyone went to check this out. Nobody. Shepherds are telling all kinds of people about this, and it appears, at least from the text here, that nobody is bothering to check it out. It's just a a matter of intellectual curiosity, something you'll get over as soon as the next curious thing comes your way. We know for a fact that the leadership of the nation didn't come. Matthew's gospel tells us that. Two years later, when the Magi come searching for he who had been born king of the Jews, right? They say, "Eh, let's see, I think one of the prophecies say it's going to be down in Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem is only six miles away from the capital city. You go down there and check it out, and Herod says, right? And then come back and tell me about it. Nobody goes to verify the news. It's a temporal amazement. Here today, gone tomorrow. Scene three. Thoughtful contemplation. Thoughtful contemplation. Verse 19. But, contrast, but in contrast to those who wondered, who were amazed at what the shepherds told them, in contrast to that, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke is, is letting you know that there is, a, there is a very significant difference between how Mary responds and how the populace at large responds. They're wild, they're amazed, they're wondering, and they couldn't be, be, couldn't be bothered. Mary has a different response. Now, Mary is an amazing woman. Absolutely amazing woman. A young girl by today's standards. Likely in her early teen years. She is a woman of great faith. A, a woman who is steeped in the Old Testament. I mean, you can go back a chapter and into chapter 1 where she where is recorded for us here what's called the Magnificat. That, that is Mary's outpouring of praise to God. And it is absolutely steeped in incredible Old Testament theology. She's a very pious woman. But unlike the shepherds who who act immediately and and, and act with a simple kind of faith, Mary comes at it a little bit differently. She wants to discern the meaning of the event. I think likely the meaning of all that has been happening to her in the last nine months, right? I mean, after all, this is not the first thing to happen. 
What a roller coaster this young girl has been on. Chapter 1 earlier records for us Gabriel's visitation to her, right? Mary, you are going to give birth to a son. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And that which is conceived in your womb is of the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy One. Wow. She leaves. And she, she gets out of Bethlehem and, and she travels south to, to visit a, a, a family relative by the name of Elizabeth, Luke tells us. And when she comes into the presence of Elizabeth, who is already pregnant, six months pregnant, with John, who later has the last name Baptist, right? Picks it up later. When she comes into the presence of of Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby, it says, leapt in her womb. Filled with the Spirit of God, he, he leaps in the womb. And she cries out, verse 42, chapter 1, Elizabeth cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women, and and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of that which was spoken to her by the Lord. That's pretty amazing stuff. Right? Or old Mary, she's going, whoa, wow. The road trip to Bethlehem, we don't know anything about it. Makes for good song lyrics, but we know nothing about it. Did Mary ride and Joseph walked? Not likely. Not likely. We don't know if either of them wrote. The trip to Bethlehem, they, they get to Bethlehem and, and, the, and the village is crowded with those of the house and line of David to register for the census. Did they pull into town on the night in which she gave birth? Not likely. It tells us when it comes time for her to, to give birth to her child, the king of Israel. The anointed one. There's no place for them. She gives birth and and lays the child in a feed trough. And there that night, these shepherds arrive with the most incredible story you can imagine about an angelic visitation. Mary hears all this and she says, whoa. I need to think about this. I need, to, I need to, to really ponder what is going on. Thoughtful contemplation. It characterizes this young woman of faith. That kind of brings us to a conclusion point. 
We have the, the heavenly annunciation. Messiah has come. Earth reverberates with the news. Yet the response of the people is quite different. Some respond immediately with a very simple faith, like the shepherds. Proclaiming what they have seen and heard to anybody who will listen. That's one response. The vast majority, it it seems, are are amazed by what they have heard. They're, They're sort of wondering about it all, but it doesn't seem to go any further than that. You know, life is busy, got problems at work, the kids are driving me crazy, and what else you got? Just doesn't seem to change anything. And then we have Mary, who deeply ponders what she has seen and heard. Those things she's been told. The obvious question is, what about you. What about you? How will you respond to the message of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas this year? How will you respond? Will it be just something that just sort of, yeah, it's, I know it's a pretty amazing story. What do we have for dinner? Will you, perhaps this year, respond in a, in a simple faith? Embrace that reality that God has, has sent His Son to rescue you from your sin. In a very simple faith, embrace that reality. Confess your need before God. Call out to Him to save you. Believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again on your behalf. That you could be made right with God. Or perhaps this is old hat to you. You've heard the Christmas message more than once. But maybe it's time this year to think about it again. huh? Maybe it's time to think about it again. Could there be anything more amazing than that God stepped into space and time to rescue a race in rebellion against Him? Beloved, these are the things into which angels long to look. It's worthy of storing it up in your heart and and pondering it over these next few days. May you find some time to get alone and to think about the wonder of Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father, only you could conceive a plan so amazing in which You would send your own Son to rescue those who are in rebellion against you, those who are your enemies, those who deserve 
your condemnation eternally. Those that have said, we want nothing to do with you, God. We want to be our own gods. And yet you would not leave us there. You would not abandon us to destruction. Instead, you sent your own son on a a search and rescue mission that would cost him his life. That he would bear our iniquity. That he would carry our griefs and sorrows. And that he would take them all the way to a Roman cross. And he would die there on that cross, abandoned by men, but far more significantly, abandoned by you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Savior cried. He was taken from that cross. He was laid in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Our Father, you raised him from the dead because death could not hold him. That the sacrifice was complete, that you had accepted his payment in full. And that now all who will embrace your son by faith, you give the right to be called the sons of God. Could there be a more amazing reality than that? There cannot. So our Father, we pray today for eyes of faith to embrace the truth as it has been given. And now may God grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and you may know His love for you. Amen and amen. Merry Christmas, beloved. If you want to talk more about the things we have been discussing today, I'll be down front here after the service. I hope to see you tomorrow night.